y'all, it's Mitch Rabelais, your buddy from Abita Springs. I am flying solo today on the podcast. That's right, Jeremy Alford is away for Washington Mardi Gras, so I am back at the Capitol. And to be honest with y'all, it's really a little deserted. Um, it's really just me, a couple of folks down on Press Row, but most everybody is enjoying the fun over at the Washington Hilton. Now, the song you just heard, that is Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield, and it accurately describes today's guest. We have on Bob Mann, and he is a minister's son from Beaumont, Texas, who has paved his own way in the wild world of Louisiana politics. But before we get to Bob and kind of talk about everything with him, we're going to hop in the DeLorean for some history. And for our history, we are talking about Mary Loretta Landrieu. She was a state representative, state treasurer, longtime United States senator, somebody who's really well-known in Louisiana politics. And what we're going to listen to are three ads from her political career. Now, the first one that you're going to hear is from 1995. And many people forget that that year she actually ran for governor. She was state treasurer, had done two terms, had been unopposed in 1987, and she decided to run for governor that year. It was a crowded Democratic field. Her, Cleo Fields, Bill Jefferson, Phil Price, and then on the Republican side you had Mike Foster and Buddy Romer. And what you're going to hear is Landry really talk about her, her tough-on-crime credentials. And it's really a unique message, especially coming from her in that race. So go ahead. Here we go. Mary Landrieu, 1995. It's time to get tough on crime. That's why I'm offering a written plan for a comprehensive approach endorsed by police and sheriffs that will require truth in sentencing. If you commit the crime, you'll do the time. We'll encourage community-based policing and put juvenile offenders in boot camps where they can learn discipline and respect for the law. Mary Landrieu knows to fight crime, we must punish criminals and give our kids something to say yes to, a good education and a job. Mary Landrieu, Governor. Now, Landrieu, of course, lost that race. She missed out on making the runoff by just a few thousand votes. Cleo Fields got that runoff spot and, of course, lost to Mike Foster. Um, the following year, however, Landrieu turned around and ran for the United States Senate and served there from 96 until 2014. And what you're going to hear next is a ad from her 2002 re-election campaign. In that race, she was running against then-elections commissioner Suzanne Hyke-Terrell, and Terrell had a lot of support from President George W. Bush, who made several trips down here to campaign for, from Governor Foster, from the state party, from the national party. And really, Landrieu was up against the Republican machine, but really responded to the attack ad. So what you're going to hear is a, is a spot in which she really responded to the Republicans and kind of just spoke directly to the voters. For months, Susie Terrell distorted my record. Last year, I helped pass the biggest tax cut in 20 years. But our economy is hurting, and working families need help now. That's why I'm proposing an immediate cut in payroll taxes to increase workers' take-home pay 
and cut taxes for employers that create new jobs. That's the difference. I want to cut taxes for everyone. Susie Terrell would cut taxes only for the wealthy. And the final ad you were going to hear is from Senator Landrieu's 2014 um re-election campaign that of course was unsuccessful she lost to bill cassidy but this ad got a lot of attention because it featured her father former new orleans mayor mitch landrew and kind of played fun of the father-daughter dynamic that they had especially given um her father's age so here we go mary and moon landrew a pair of louisiana political legends when you have nine children, you're bound to have one who's hard-headed. Dad, you're one to talk. I know how BP felt when Mary fought to get billions for Louisiana. It was their mess. And when she took on the president to approve the Keystone Pipeline. It means high-paying jobs for Louisiana. And now as chairman of the Energy Committee, those other senators better get ready. Oh, they are. And now you know why Putin won't let her into Russia. I'm Mary Landrieu, and I approve this method. In case you were wondering, and I know that you were, this is not a show about ads. This is not a show about daddies and their daughters. This is a podcast for people who love Louisiana politics. I am Mitch Rabelais, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is the La Politics Report. Underwritten by Adams and Reese and recorded live from the La Politics Mobile Studios, we endeavor to be your entertainment and a window into the Bayou State's colorful past. We are on episode 61, the third episode of season four. And our guest is Bob Mann. You know him from LSU. You know him from the United States Senate and the governor's office. He is a man who has had a long career in Louisiana politics, and a lot of people know him well. Um, something interesting that I didn't know about Bob when, they, when we did this interview is that he actually started out as a Republican. So many people now associate Bob with the Democratic Party. He worked for Democrats. He's a very prominent Democrat. But believe it or not, his first campaign he worked on, Dave Train, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Train in 1979. That's right. Next time you see Bob, you got to let him know that you know now that he started out on the other side. Before we get All over right. to the interview with Bob, first we're going to hear from Zach Butterworth with Adams and Reese. We're going to do a little Bayou to the Beltway with Butterworth, talk about all that's going on in Washington, D.C. Here we go. Adams and Reese's own Zach Butterworth. <laughs> And we're joined by Zach Butterworth of Adams and Reese for a little Bayou to the Beltway. Butterworth, Zach, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're talking, the government shutdown just ended um, on Friday. We're now on Monday. Um, what's really going on on the Hill right now? How are things shaking down um, in Congress? Well, the shutdown really paused almost everything that was happening in Congress. And so we've had about a month where normally you'd have committees ramping up and committee members being named and legislation being rolled out. And that really slowed down and was put on pause because of the shutdown. So we're back on track today is sort of day one of this new Congress in many ways. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. So the many members of the Louisiana delegation, though, have their committee assignments, some very exciting moves there. So happy to talk through those. Right. So so what are some changes that we've seen come to the Louisiana delegation, particularly on the House side, because of the six congressmen that the state has, five are Republicans, and that party's out of power. So that's led to a little bit of a shuffle. It's 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 a much, much different dynamic, one that we haven't seen in uh, almost a decade. But Congressman Cedric Richmond is obviously the only Democrat now in the delegation. Uh, the the uh, 
Congress is now run by Democrats with Speaker Pelosi. Uh, her leadership team looks very similar from when they were in the minority. And so Representative Steny Hoyer from uh, Maryland is her leader. And then Jim Clyburn from South Carolina is the majority whip. Something to note is that Congressman Richmond has been named an assistant whip. And I think that was a, a very specific call out for Congressman Richmond and a message to everyone else that he is a leader in this Congress. And, and that's really a whole new position because Steve Scalise didn't necessarily have an assistant whip when he had the job of majority whip last go around, right? No, it is a it's a new position, and I think that's that's what makes it notable, and it'll put him at the table for all national negotiations that that he wants to show an interest in and. Uh, be a part of. So Louisiana has a member in the leadership in both parties now. Um, so Louisiana does have a member in both parties of leadership. And so that's really exciting. And um, since Congressman Richmond and Congressman Scalise have been in D.C. together, they've teamed up on any number of items from coastal restoration to disaster aid. And they've been very, very successful in bucking their own parties. And so uh, I expect that same level of bipartisanship to continue. And we've seen it with Congressman Graves, um, Abraham, a number of members have worked closely with Congressman Richmond to do those types of things. So the committees, while granted they've changed, they're still shuffling a little bit. What's going to be at the top of this agenda for this new Congress? Um, what's, what's really some things that they have shaken on the policy side? So you, you've heard from the campaign trail some broad outlines of things that Democrats plan to focus on. One is uh, is prescription drug prices. That's beginning today, and there's hearings today on prescription drug prices. You're going to see a lot of debate around the Affordable Care Act and how do we expand it or strengthen it, and so there's going to be a lot of talk around that. Um, for Louisiana, you're going to look at tariffs and how does President Trump's tariffs on certain products, how are they affecting Louisiana, and how are they affecting the nation, and so you're going to hear, I think, some potential debate around restricting the president's ability to do tariffs in a unilateral way. And so. All of those things, uh, Louisiana's got to keep an eye on. Uh, of course, we're still working on the duplication of benefits item that Congressman Graves and Scalise and Richmond have worked so hard to fix, but it's still not quite there yet. And so I know there was language in the last disaster aid package to move that along. Of course, we, we talk about the whips, um, Scalise and Richmond. What about some of the other members of the delegation? Where are they really falling in the uh, committee assignments? So I think we have some interesting moves with Congressman Clay Higgins. He is being added to the Oversight Committee, which is where much of the oversight of the Trump administration is going to begin to take shape. And his role in that and his voice in that will certainly be on a national stage as well. And, and Congressman Mike Johnson um, from the 4th District, he's only in his second term, but he's landed a pretty plumb post as well with the Study Committee. He'll be on the Republican Study Committee, and you know that's a, a track that Congressman Scalise took to leadership. And so certainly a mover and a shaker and somebody to watch in right, future that, Congresses. That, that's a post that was held by Vice President Mike Pence, Congressman Scalise. A lot of people who've moved into leadership have held that job before. Um, and that's the largest caucus in the Republican Congress. Right. And then those, I mean, and he's leading that group going forward. Um, Congressman Ralph Abraham's already announced he's running for governor. Where is he at as far as things are concerned on the congressional side? So he's landed another important committee assignment at the Armed Services Committee. And given his district and um, the, the huge number of military service members that we have in Louisiana, that's going to be a really important position for him in the next few months as he begins his campaign, but as he continues to serve for the next two years. 
Right, and, and he's said in interviews with us and with others that armed services is really at the top of his agenda as far as Congress is concerned. And we'll have a whole host of nominees as well for the Senate. Um, and John Kennedy has really proven to be center stage during these judicial hearings. Should we expect more of this? Well, I think you absolutely will. As the Trump administration continues to restaff the White House and the senior levels of its agencies, Senator Kennedy is going to play an important role in, not, in confirming those nominees. And he's also on the Appropriations Committee. And so he's the only Louisiana delegation member on the Appropriations Committee. Typically, in the past, at least one member of the House has been on that committee. So he has a, a, a large burden to shoulder, but he certainly is capable and um, focused on that committee, too. And, of course, um, uh, not to be forgotten is uh, U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy, and uh, he's coming up for re-election next year in 2020. So what, what's really on his plate going forward? He's up in 2020, but he certainly has a full legislative agenda in Congress. He sits on a number of really important committees. The first is the Finance Committee, and that's where um, you're going to see bills around paid family leave, where he's working with Ivanka Trump to write a bill on. That's where many of the health care changes will come from. That's where any reforms to Social Security will be. And so he's going to have a really important voice in those debates. He's also on the Energy Committee, which everyone knows has historically been one of Louisiana's most important committees. Absolutely, oil and gas. But I, I will say when Bill Cassidy was elected in 2014, we probably never thought we would hear the words Bill Cassidy and Ivanka Trump used in the same sentence. We probably you – would, you wouldn't want to bet on that, but here we are. Talking about Washington, so let's just say – Hands down, is Washington Mardi Gras the best party in D.C. all year? It absolutely is the best party in D.C. Absolutely, and you can catch quite a few members of the congressional delegation there as well in the flesh. Zach Butterworth, Adams and Reese, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The guest today on the program is Robert Townley Mann, Jr. However, you can call him Bob. I think just about everybody does. Born on October 2, 1958, Bob has had a long career in Louisiana politics, from journalism to campaigns to staff, and now he is a, currently a professor at LSU's Manship School. Bob, thanks so much for being on the program with Good us. Good to be with you, Mitch. We appreciate you coming. As I said in the introduction, a lot of people know you from your work from LSU, from your work for Senator Long, Senator Bro, Governor Blanco, but like so many other things, Louisiana politics has entered the digital sphere, and a lot of people know you because of your infamous Twitter account. <laughs> so how did this really come about with you on social media, and how did it evolve? Because... We see a lot of folks, particularly, and I'm not trying to date you here, of your age, not really adapt to social media, but it's something that you've really taken to. Well, I, I started the – so I, I used Twitter and social media, mo most, mostly Facebook in the beginning, but then later Twitter to build a following for my blog, which later led to my, my column in the Times-Picayune. So I didn't really start off with – with social media, particularly Twitter, as a as a way to express myself, which I which I now do more than than uh, than any other way, but m mostly just a way to let let people know, hey, I published this thing on my blog, try to drive traffic to my blog, and then it then it became and that was you know that was uh, so that was I think in maybe 2013 I started using Twitter. I didn't know what it, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know really how to use it, and and so it just you know, you just you just use it. You you make mistakes. Uh, it changes, and you adapt to those changes, and you learn. And uh, if you're if you're lucky enough, you you build a you build a, a, a large enough following that um, that you that, that that Twitter itself becomes part of your voice. I didn't anticipate that it would that it would come that way. I just thought it was a way to get some traffic to my blog. And 
it's really, I guess you should say, it really has become part of your voice and your brand as well. And, and part of that is um, a lot of the op-eds, we see them on your blog, uh, something like Truth. We saw it in the Picayune for a long time. What is it really for you when you're sitting down and you're writing out a piece of political thought? There's so much chatter and so much back and forth down in the political sphere. When you sit down to write something, how do you really phrase it and put it together to cut through the noise that we hear so much today in politics? Well, I think part of it is, uh, you know, there are some people who on Twitter who uh, have a, a complete sort of thought. They're just, you know, they wake up in the morning and they have this thing they want to say and they'll say it. Matthew Dowd, who's a, who's a renowned political consultant and, and a commentator for, MB, for ABC, ABC uh, is really one of those kind of people. He writes, he'll get, wake up in the morning and he'll, he'll make some statement and he's not responding to people, although I think he does that, but mostly he's, he's, this is something that's on my mind. And I'll do that sometimes. I find, I find if it's, you know, if you're going to call it social media, then you've got to be, there's got to be some social aspect of it. You've got to be having a conversation and talking to people. And so a lot of what I do is responding to, to people who, uh, you know, either President Trump or uh, Senator Cassidy or, or, uh, or Senator Kennedy or some other, some other politician who says something that is either outrageous or, or, or inaccurate um, uh, and, and try to, you know, not maybe they usually don't respond to me. But but it does it does tend to, to get people engaged in a way that I think just just making the statement wouldn't. And by the way, if you're not following Bob, his Twitter handle is at RT Man Jr. Now, moving on from social media, I want to take a little bit of a dive into your background. Um, now, you were, if I'm correct, you were born and grew up in Texas. Am I right? In on Beaumont, that? Texas. It in was September 2nd, by the way. September not, 2nd? I apologize. No, that's I all right. Just don't want, I just don't want people sending me uh, my birthday present next year a month late. A month so, early. Yeah. And well, don't worry. We will have Bob's birthday right in the Tuesday tracker. <laughs> um, so what was that childhood like for you growing up in Beaumont? Um, at that time, well, it was in the. I grew up. I was grew up in the '60s, and um, and you know the pre-civil rights era '60s. Uh, it was a. It was a. You know, it was it was it was a normal sort of middle class upbringing. My father was uh, an oil company uh, executive for Sun Oil Company and worked for them for about 24 years, and he got laid off. And um, decided that uh, he that was a maybe a, a sign from God, and so he, he went into the ministry. He had already he'd been sort of a kind of a lay minister to that point, but he decided to go into full time ministry. And so, um, so I grew up as a preacher's kid, and son uh, of a preacher man. Son of a preacher man, and we moved around a lot. I mean, his first uh, full time church was in Shreveport, and then we moved to um, New Mexico, Tucumcari, New Mexico, for a few years, and then back to Louisiana to Leesville. Uh, and I graduated high school in Leesville, and that's kind of how I ended up staying in Louisiana because I graduated high school here and went to college here and and uh, and just stayed. Well, I, I do want to point out that uh, Raymond Struther is also from the same part yeah, of Texas. As he you. sure must, is. Must yeah, be Port Arthur. Port Arthur. Yeah. must be something in the water. But was politics always an interest for you as a young man? It was. My my parents were, were very politically aware, maybe not engaged. My mother you know, wrote the local congressman, uh, Jack Brooks, a lot. Um, and I was always very interested in politics, followed politics very closely, probably a lot like you you did growing up. Very I'm sure. much so. And, um, and so it was just, you know, I just consumed it. This is, this is the days before the Internet, before uh, cable television. I mean, the kind of politics that I consumed were, you know, in the newspaper or going down to the library and getting a book or something and reading about it that way. Um 
And uh, I also uh, I, I learned very early on. I kind of I kind of took up a, a, a hobby of, of autograph collecting, and I found out that if you write if you write people, uh, especially if, a, if it's a kid writing a, a famous person, a politician that politicians will write them back. And so I, I was writing all kinds of different politicians, just asking them for their autograph or asking them for a piece of memorabilia or whatever, and, and, and amassed a pretty good little autograph collection of various politicians from the, from the 60s. Of the autographs, what's the one that you just go, wow, that, that's your favorite, it's one that really stands out to you? Uh, two, really, uh, uh, Harry Truman. I wrote Harry Truman a couple of wow. times. In fact, he sent me two, um, two little um, uh photographs of himself that he that he autographed and dated um and then uh, hubert humphrey i wrote hubert humphrey and this is kind of odd because i was not uh my parents were pretty conservative politically they were not fans of hubert humphrey but something about humphrey really appealed to me i don't know why he was vice president at the time and so i wrote him and um and uh got got his autograph and some other some other material that that his office sent to me and um you know the 20 Five, 20, 25 years later, I was writing a book about him and got to know a lot of his staff, and um, and so I kind of closed that circle. Right, and Hubert Humphrey too also has an LSU connection, which really comes right full circle. Yeah, and you. and it's one of my uh, biggest beefs about LSU and Baton Rouge in general that we don't honor the fact that uh, a, a vice president and a and a major party presidential nominee and one of the most important people to the civil rights movement uh, lived and worked and got his degree here at LSU. There's not a single building, street, or anything except a there's a there is a, a lecture series that the, that the political science department at LSU has named after him. But you know he deserves something more than that, and it's and it's always rankled me that we've given him such short shrift. And we're talking about college, which I guess leads me right into your own college experience. You went to what is now ULM, right? And so. As an undergraduate, were you a guy that was involved in student government? Was political science at the forefront of really your college experience? I was. I was involved in, in student government there, got involved. Um, I had been involved in student government in high school in Leesville, was my senior class president, and then ran for, I guess I was freshman class president at, LS, at, at ULM, and then I was uh, SGA secretary, ran for student body president and lost. But yeah, I was involved the whole way through in in, in, uh, in, in not only in campus politics, but but working in in politics there. In you know, for, for example, I think the first political campaign I got involved in was uh, a congressional campaign back in the in the fourth district when Buddy Leach was running against Jimmy Wilson's Republican, and I I was naive enough to think that I could organize uh, Vernon Parish, which was Buddy Leach's home parish. I could organize Vernon Parish for this Republican his Republican opponent, which. I quickly found out there wasn't much organizing to be done in that parish for or against Buddy Leach. And then I worked for Dave Treen, uh, another Republican. who you know, He was running for, uh, for governor in, in 79, and I worked organizing uh, the campus for him, mainly uh, uh, getting students to sign up to request absentee ballots. So you're somebody that people really affiliate with Democrats yeah. um, later in your career, but you yeah. actually started out your first two campaigns. You worked for Republican. Oh, yeah, I started out as Republican, very conservative Republican. Um, and probably, I'd say I voted for um, I voted for my first my first vote presidential vote was for Gerald Ford. Voted for Ronald Reagan twice before I guess you could say I saw the light. You see, you 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 crossed the line. Yeah. Um. And, and somebody else that was really there, who's really a political legend in uh, Northeast Louisiana, is uh, former West Monroe Mayor Dave Norris. Yep. 
and he was around ULM, and then you actually, if I'm correct, covered him as a reporter later? Yeah, Dave was my economics professor at ULM, and that's, I think the semester, as I recall, the semester that I was in his class, he was he was running for mayor of West Monroe and then got elected mayor during that semester, at the end of that semester. And then uh, about a year later, or a couple of years later, um, I was working for the New Star as, a, as the uh, city hall reporter, the Washtenaw Parish government and West Monroe City Hall reporter and, and, and covered, covered Dave. And, and uh, over the years, in the 40 years since then, he and I have are become very good friends, and he, I consider him one of my mentors. In fact, i am got a book coming out in, in October, and I'm dedicating the book to him because he's been that important to my life. And, and he's somebody, I mean, he has a career in Louisiana politics. I don't know that will ever be matched his yeah. run. I mean, he just left office last year, I believe, yep. Yep. and had got elected and really was a longtime mayor in West Monroe with really very little challenges. Elected, I think, ten times, and only the first the, – he, he was um, – he was opposed the first time, and then for for the next uh, what f- uh, forty years he was unopposed for re-election. That's that's re- that's just remarkable. Um, and so I, I just he was opposed the last time he he he, he was defeated for, for re-election. Um, and I think that's mainly because he had decided not he had announced he wasn't going to run and then changed his mind. I think if he just if he had had stayed in the race from the beginning, I think it would have been hard to beat him. But just a remarkable political career in this state. I don't think I don't know. Is there anybody else that's served as mayor of a of a Louisiana city longer than Dave? I don't know. I, I don't believe so. I mean, I'd have to look. There may be somebody, but I know he's certainly up there. If he's not number one, he's probably number two. Now, you leave college in your career. You go to the News Star and then to the Shreveport Journal. So, what was it like for a young Bob man as a reporter just breaking out in the wild world of North Louisiana politics? Well, it was a great place to learn. The, the first place they sent me was uh, to the to Ruston to to be the. I had the I had the grand title of Ruston bureau chief, which I, I really was. I was the chief of myself because I was the only I was the only reporter in that bureau. <laughs> so it was I was just the Ruston reporter, and I covered. I had I was really in charge of covering the news for for four parishes: uh, Union Parish. Uh, uh, Lincoln Parish, Jackson Parish, and Wynn Parish. So I had it was a pretty broad swath going north to south and, and northern in North Louisiana. And so I I covered I was there for almost a year and I covered everything from car wrecks to to murder trials to town council meetings to school board meetings to so just you know you name it. Um, and it was a great it was a great great training ground for a young reporter because you had to be you had to learn quickly to be versatile. You had to learn to. I had to write on the fly. I mean, there was many nights when I would be down in Winfield covering the Winfield City Council or the Wind Parish Police Jury meeting, and the meeting ends at you know nine o'clock, and I don't have time to drive back to Ruston to write my story. And this is the days before the days of, of laptops and cell phones, and I had to go find a, a phone booth and get in the phone booth and literally dictate my story to a, a clerk in the newsroom who would you know write what I was telling him or her and. That was just great training. You know, you learn to think on the fly. You learn to write on the fly. I can sit down. It, it trained me to sit down and write on write on deadline. And it's, it's you know, it's never been intimidating. You say, I, I need I need you to bang something out, and and I need it in ten minutes. I can do that. You know, because of that of that training that I got early in my journalistic career. What is what was the most interesting experience you had as a young reporter? What was just something that made you go, wow, or a memory from that time that really stands out to you? You know, that's a great. So I think about this. I was covering a murder trial 
this would have been maybe in 1981 or 82 in, uh, in uh, Jonesboro um, in Jackson Parish. And, um, and I'll never forget, I'm, I, and I don't remember a whole lot about this murder trial. I just remember that the, uh, that the defense attorney gets the son of the victim. This, 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 this man was killed, was murdered. And I think I think I think the wife was accused of killing the husband, or it might have been the husband was accused of killing the wife. Anyway, the 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 defense attorney gets the young, maybe 13, 12, 13 year old son of the of the murder victim on the stand, and 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 I'll never forget this this dramatic moment. It was almost like something out of a one of those movies, like uh, Matt, uh, those TV shows like Matlock or or, or Ironsides or something where. He, he wheels around and he says, you murdered your mother, didn't you? And this kid was clearly did not murder his mother. It was it was the it was the, it was the defense attorney's client, the the, the spouse who had, who, who had murdered. And, and he was he was convicted by the he was he was he was found guilty by four o'clock that afternoon. But it was just the most amazing thing. I don't, I've never seen anything like that. Like that was out of a movie. This he just wheels around this very dramatic thing and tries to accuse this, this poor little kid of, of murdering his own parent. It was it was it was maybe the most heartless thing I'd ever seen in my life and it, it, it it's just indelibly uh, uh, etched on my mind as one of them is just like wow and then I thought how cool is this that I get to cover this that I you know I get to I get to cover you know like tomorrow I'll be doing something I'll be covering something else but I get to cover murder trials like the next day is I get to cover a you know a, a really interesting school board meeting the next day I'm I'm wandering around uh, a country road in um, in northern Lincoln Parish uh, interviewing people along a, a, a stretch of highway called White Lightning Road, trying to find out why is it called White Lightning Road, and interviewing all these people, some of whom had worked on a chain gang uh, of moonshiners who were forced to build this road. And I just realized this is the best job in the world. I mean, every day I get to, I, every day I have something really interesting to do and some interesting people to talk to. And so you know, I could talk all day about that, about those you know not nine or ten months that I spent in Ruston because it was just every day was something just really interesting and and it was a for me. It was kind of my the golden era of of my journalism career. It was just a lot of fun. I learned a lot. From there, you go over to the Shreveport Journal, and then you hop into um, uh, Senator Russell Longstaff. What really led you to make the change from journalism into political communication? I, I really didn't want to leave journalism. I wasn't looking to leave journalism. It never occurred to me to do anything like that. Um, I had Edwin Edwards had been elected governor. I'd covered his race for, for governor in '83, and he'd been elected governor. He was serving as governor, and uh, then he got he got indicted, um, and he was about to go on trial. And so his uh, defense attorney, a guy named William Jeffress, uh, was from D.C. who was going to be defend who was going to be defending him in this trial. He, he was later uh, acquitted. Um, and the journal, my editor, sent me up to Washington to do a, to interview the. the to interview Jeffress and do a profile on this guy who was going to defend the governor of Louisiana. So I went up and did that, and I had a little time on my hands, and so I thought I would. I went over to 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 Capitol Hill to the Russell, I mean to the Hart Senate Office Building, and Daryl Owen, the son of Dono and the longtime Public Service Commissioner, was Bennett Johnston's chief of staff at Senator Bennett Johnston's chief of staff, and I thought, well, I'll do a little profile on this Shreveport native who's chief of staff to a U.S. senator. And uh, so Daryl and I, I did my interview with him, and then at the end of it, he. After you know I, we, the interview was over, he says, um, "You know, Russell Long's uh, press secretary, Rafael Bermudez, is, is uh, has left. Is you know has moved, moved on and is going back to Baton Rouge. And these, Senator Long is looking for a press secretary. Is that a job you'd be interested in?" And 
you know, I mean, I was, I guess I was 25 or 26. And I said, I was too stupid to know that I was unqualified for the job. So I said, sure. Uh, yeah, I'd love that job. And, and so the next day I was in Senator Long's office being interviewed by his um, legislative director, Karen Stahl. And then about maybe two, three weeks later, Senator Long and uh, Chris Kirkpatrick, his chief of staff, came to Shreveport and they interviewed me there. And I don't know, maybe it was a couple of weeks later, they called and offered me the job and I was moving to Washington. And it just sort of it just sort of fell in my lap. And if I had known how unqualified I was for that job, how un, just completely unqualified I was for that job, I wouldn't have had the courage to take it. I'm glad I I'm glad I didn't know. And it, it certainly has put you on a path to to where you are right now. And what was Senator Russell Long like to work for? He's now this legendary figure in Louisiana politics, but what was he like on a day-to-day basis in the office? He was a he was a delight to work for. He was just he was a wonderful man. Just a really wonderful, kind, very generous person with an incredible sense of humor and probably the smartest person I've ever worked around um, and, 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 a, and very deceptively smart. He was, uh, so I, I covered him a few times when he, when I was a reporter, when I was working in Monroe um, and other places, I'd cover, cover something, some event that he had and interviewed him a time or two. And, you know, so he, he had a little bit of a stutter. He kind of mumbled a little bit. He shuffled around. Um, he, he kind of seemed absent-minded. In fact, if you didn't know, if you, I, I had this impression of him that he wasn't all that smart, that he was just, that he was just a son of Yui Long who just sort of fell into this job and had held, found a way to hold on to it, but wasn't really that, all that bright. And um, I later realized that, that he wanted people to think that. He wanted people to underestimate him. Um, when I went to work for him, I found out that this is, this is a guy with a first-rate intellect, with a brilliant mind, um, a very fertile mind, always thinking, always coming up, always innovating, always rolling new ideas around and bouncing them off people. Um, the one thing that and I used to, I, I joked with Senator Long about this a few times, is he was t- totally uh, egalitarian in the way that he dealt with people. So I was 25, 26 with him, and um, he would, he would, you know, Rafael Bermudez, who was my um, my predecessor in the job, said, now, look, Senator Long is going to, someday you're just going to be riding along in the car with him, and he's going to turn and ask you what you think about some arcane part of the tax code, if you agree with his assessment of this. And I thought, there's just no way he would do that. And that's the way he was. Whoever he was with, he was interested in what you thought. And and he just, it, whether you had expertise or not, he was willing to listen, and he was interested in your views on this, on this kind of stuff. And so... Um, you could if you could make an argument to him. You could say, Senator Long, I, I'd like to explain to you why I think this is a bad idea to do this. And he would listen to you, and he would treat you almost like a peer in his in his way of of uh, it was you know it wasn't like well I'll I'll tolerate this lowly staffer for 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 three minutes. He really engaged you. He really he really he, he would ask questions and treat you with respect. And um, it was just you know there just weren't many people there aren't many people like that in politics who treat junior staffers like that and i'll be forever grateful for the time i worked with him and the 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 opportunity to get him to get to know him as well as i did and russell long by a lot of accounts was a great storyteller oh yeah did he ever talk about his father and his uncle earl oh he talked about him all the time uh one of the you know it kind of goes to what i was just saying earlier about how he was sort of totally unaware of you know he it if he was with you, he was going to ask you your opinion. He was going to, he, he treated me like I was 50 when I was 27. One day, one night we're, we're flying down. I'm flying with him down to, uh, from DC down to new Orleans. 
and um, we get on the plane, and it's snowing like crazy, and they shut the airport down. They had to uh, de-ice our plane three or four times. We were probably sitting there on that tarmac for about two hours before we could take off. And I started just saying, tell me, tell me stories about your, your father and, and Uncle Earl. And so he just, we just sat there together, and he just told me story after story after story after story about his father and, his, and, and, and mostly about his uncle. His, I, I knew more about his father than I did about Uncle Earl, and he told me just a lot of – and he knew Uncle Earl better than he knew Yui, frankly. So he had a lot more Yui – he had a lot more Earl stories firsthand. He had a lot of Yui stories, but they were, a lot of them were secondhand. The Earl stories were firsthand. And uh, I, I still laugh at this because at one point he turned to me and he said, uh, after he told a few Earl stories, he says, um, uh, 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 did, did, did you know Earl? And I said, oh, you know, <laughs> Senator, I was, I, I was two years old when Earl died. So now I didn't, I didn't <laughs> know him. But, I mean, that just shows you how, you know, he, would, he, wasn't, he was just totally unaware of, of like, the, the age and the experience of who he was talking to. He just was, you know, you're, 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 you're a person I'm talking to, you, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat you like, you know, like you're as, as, as old and ex, as experienced as I am. One of the, so I worked, the first year I worked for him was the 50th anniversary of his father's assassination and his death. And he wanted to write, uh, he wanted a speech to deliver on the day that his father died on the 50th anniversary of his father's death on the Senate floor. And so he, he said, you know, can you help me write this speech? And I came up with this idea that why don't I just interview you because that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reporter and I can, I, I want to just, inter- we just have a tape recorder. Let me interview you and have those interviews transcribed and then I can massage your words into a speech. And that's what we did for probably... I don't know, two months, I would go over to his apartment at the Watergate or I'd meet him out of his, out at his, uh, uh, his house on uh, Rattlesnake Mountain out in the, in the, in the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, or, other, or in his office or whatever, and I would just interview him about his father, and, and he would tell me these incredible stories, and we, we turned that into the speech that he gave. And you also wrote a book, Legacy to Power, Senator Russell mm-hmm. Long of Louisiana. When you embarked on that project, first of all, what really led you to do it, and when you walked away... What did you walk away with not knowing when you had worked for Russell Long? Well, what, what made me want to do it is I wanted to write books. I, was, I, was, I, had, I still had this urge to write. Uh, I still had this, this sort of the journalist in me, you know, the, the chronicler of politics in me. And I figured that I couldn't become a journalist. I was working on Capitol Hill. I was working for John Bro as his press secretary after Senator Long retired. But I figured maybe I could write a book. And maybe maybe I could get Senator Long to cooperate with me, you know, be make, let me interview him about it and open doors to other to his former colleagues and, and other people. And so he did, surprisingly. Again, he should not have hired me to be his press secretary, and he probably shouldn't have let me write his, his biography because I didn't know what I was doing. But he worked with me, and uh, we spent – I spent probably two years interviewing him. I'd go over um, every – maybe like once a month or sometimes more and sit for – We'd sit for an hour or two as long as we had, and I would just methodically go through his career. I was simultaneously digging through his archives and you know, his papers and asking him questions based on what I was finding and all that, interviewing his former colleagues and other staff members. And, and, um, and so I, you know, it, it took me about four years to write the book. And I guess what I came away with out of, out of the book was that we will never see, Louisiana will just never see this kind of person again. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the sort of the, the, this person who connected Louisiana's modern political era to, its, to that era of long, the long era, who transcended his 
the the you know the 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 politics of his father's time and 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 did things in a in a different way and and became the national figure that his father never really was able to become because of his early death and um and i just you know i look back on that period and just think you know we've whatever you think about john kennedy and bill cassidy they are just not in the count they're just not in the same league as as russell long uh was in his in his first day in office much less in his last day in office in a story that you've you and I have talked about before is that you had just been on Russell Long's staff for a little while, and they call you into the office, and you get told quite a shocking announcement. Yeah, I had moved. So part of the deal was that I was going to go work for him for the first year in Washington, and then uh, and then when he was running for re-election, and I was going to go back in in '86 and be the campaign press secretary, another job that I was totally unqualified to do. Um, but about six weeks, it was fe- February 25th um, of uh, 1985, I get called, just summoned to Senator Long's office. And I didn't really know him that well. I'd only been on, a, like I said, I'd only been on staff for six weeks. And it, I walk into the office and it's Senator Long and Chris Kirkpatrick, his chief of staff. And they sit me down and he, Senator Long says, um, you know, basically he says, Bob, I've decided I'm not going to run for reelection. And my first thought was, well, these guys are playing a joke on me. Uh, and it, this is a test to see if I have the nerve to stand up to Senator Long and tell him why that's a lousy idea. So, so I did. I said, Senator, I think you're making a mistake. I started, I started art, trying to persuade him, you know, tell him why this is not a good idea. And I'll never forget Chris is sitting next to me, and Chris, in the middle of this, this eloquent argument, to the second most senior member of the Senate, he puts his hand on on my arm, basically to say, "Dude, this is for real. This is not a joke." And I realized that oh, they're, they're, they didn't call, <laughs> they did not call me in for my advice on, on this decision. This decision has been made, and what he wants is to, for me to arrange a press conference in a few hours so he can make the announcement. So I immediately went into into this mode of calling a press conference and getting things set up so he could so he could make the announcement at about three o'clock that afternoon. And of course, that 1986 election was when John Bro defeated Henson Moore mm-hmm. um, in a runoff. And you went to work for Senator Bro when he came into office. What was that transition like, and how was John Bro different from Russell Long as a, I guess, as a boss? Well, so Bro had been a staffer in, in a way. You know, Long had been a staffer for briefly for his for his uncle Earl, but um, Long had mostly always been a senator, and uh, and Bro had been a staffer. He'd been a, a congressional staffer to Edwin Edwards, and. So there's a little more. It was a lot more in, informality, I think, in, in the way Bro dealt with his staff. He was he was younger, so and it was different because I was working for Long in his last in the last two of his 38 years in the Senate, when he was in his when he when he was in his late mid to late 60s. I went to work for John Bro in his first year of his three terms of the, in the U.S. Senate when he was in his mid 40s. So it was a it was a this was a one guy who was sort of phasing out, you know, sort of closing down the shop and another and and. You know, not being really uh, eager to talk to the press, not really being all that interested in doing a lot of interviews. I mean, he really didn't have any reason to do it. Um, his career was almost over, although he did he did he did uh, uh, he did play around with running for governor in '87. But um, he um, but but you know, Bro was hungry, was very ambitious, was ready to go, was was ready to get involved in everything, and so it was like it was like you're you know you're driving 
uh, you're, dri- you're driving this car down the road going 20 miles an hour and then then this other car comes along you get in it and it's going 90 miles an hour you know and you're trying to keep up and it was really it was it was kind of a, a, a head snapping change of pace but it was good I, I mean i love working for bro i worked for him for, for 17 years and he was an amazing boss a great friend still is and i, I treasure those years and he was somebody on Capitol Hill that really got a reputation for being in the middle. He really yep. could work with both parties. Uh, Trent Lott, now his lobbying partner, still speaks to this day about how him and Senator Bro would get together and work on things. What was that like being working for that member in Capitol Hill in that era? Well, it was it was a time when there really were there were were, were moderates. There aren't really many moderates, if any, left in the Senate now. Uh, there were there were twenty. 25 senators at the time who you would who you could classify as moderate to some degree and who really kind of ran the place because if they could all get together and they they often did they could decide the fate of a of any legislative proposal and so it was it was kind of fun because even though bro was a, was a junior member of the senate he was an influential member of the senate because of he was willing to work with both sides and he was not a vote that either side could could take for granted um it also didn't hurt him that he had a very good relationship with, with, with President George H.W. Bush and um, and then later with, with Bill Clinton. So it was his power came from not only his ability to work both sides of the aisle in the Senate, but he also was able to, especially with Bill Clinton, was able to bridge, um, to build a bridge between Clinton and, and some of the Republicans who didn't know Clinton well or didn't trust him, but they trusted Bro. Um, and uh, so it put him in a really... A really great place but it was a time when um you know you you i remember i was i'd been um, i was very involved in the senate press secretaries association i was president of that organization for a year uh, and uh in those days uh we i had i had great friends uh for republican for press secretaries for republican senators who we did a lot to with with each other we socialized we went on trips together um, I mean, they were they were genuine friends, and there was and I would I dated a, a young woman who was working for Senator Danforth, Republican of Missouri. She was his deputy press secretary, and I would go to these Danforth parties, and she would come to bro parties, and no one would ever say, "Well, what's this Republican doing here?" You know, is she a spy? And no one on Danforth staff would say, "What's this Democrat from Bro's office? What's he, is he what's, what's he doing here?" There was no suspicion whatsoever that there was anything odd about it. You know, and and it's that was a, that was before the days when when the when, when we were really in warring camps, I mean, it was clear. It was a clear delineation between Republican and Democrat, but not like it is today. It was just there were there. You could you could have friendships across the aisle in really deep and meaningful ways that that I'm. I just feel like maybe you can't have that now. And we're talking about Capitol Hill back in the '80s and early '90s, and now there were a lot of giants in that Senate. Oh yeah, Strom Thurmond, yep. Ted Kennedy, um, Bob Dole. What yeah. was your interactions? I mean, I granted, I know you were a young staffer at the time, but what were your interactions like with some of those senators? Well, so when I went to work for for Long, we were on the second floor of the Russell Building, right off our office was closest to the um, rotunda on the second floor on the Constitution Street side, and next door to us was Strom Thurmond, who had, who was he seemed like a hundred years old at the time, although he lived to be over a hundred. He was probably only I think he was in his. 70s or 80s at the time and then next to him was senator john stennis who was another giant of the senate from mississippi uh right below us was ted kennedy um so it was you know you're just sort of swimming in this this history they called our hall 
Confederate row because it was these three deep South Southern Democrats. Um, and then when I moved to when I went to work for Bro, uh, it was I was in the Hart Building, and um, I would John Glenn was on our floor, and so I would see Senator Glenn all the time. I, we I, you know he never knew my name, but I I swear I was telling a, a student the other day that I bet you I saw I ran, I ran across John Glenn three times a week to the point that we we began to recognize each other and say hello in a very familiar way and i thought holy smokes this is my childhood hero and i'm like i'm like he's now he's like a like a sort of like a co-worker some guy that i would you know see walking down the hall i mean this is how insane is this this is the coolest thing uh when i first got to the senate i remember um having that same reaction to seeing barry goldwater i was on the train going from the russell building over to the capitol that little underground subway train and senator goldwater uh, gets on the car with me. Uh, he had really bad hips at that time, could barely stand up. And I remember thinking, should I help the man? Because I, should I help him? And I decided not to because he was a pretty he was a pretty proud guy. But I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is a this is one of my heroes from as a kid. And uh, here I am, you know, here I am, kind of just just encountering him in this casual workplace environment. It was like that everywhere you went. I mean, you know, there was. The proximity of staff to other members was just so close, and I think it still is. I mean, you see these guys wandering around, a lot of them, men and women now, mostly men in those days, but you see them wandering around, with a lot of them without staff, very approachable. Um, it's not like the president or the vice president. They're not surrounded by security. Most of them have no security. And um, they're, 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 there's, it's just a – it's just – it's and it's to, to the extent that it's still like that, and I think it is, it's just – unlike any any place in the world and while you were on senator bro's staff in 91 you briefly took a leave and went and worked for senator bennett johnson mm -hmm. on his reelection campaign against david duke and that is a race that's one of the most infamous campaigns yeah. in louisiana history what was that like for you working in that time period in that era fully understanding who david duke was well, it's the thing that I'm most proud of, I think, in my time in politics is that I took six months out of my life to go down and help beat David Duke. I don't, I don't think I, I didn't beat him, but I, but I was part of the effort that did because it was really important to our state to, to stamp out this, this racist Nazi who was giving Louisiana such a bad name and threatening to be elected senator in the, year, in, in the next year, be elected governor. And it was, it was kind of surreal, though, because um, it brought out expose some demons that we still had in, in our body politic that I think a lot of people thought had, you know, maybe been exercised or had, had moved on and they were still very much there. And um, it was a very revealing race. It, it really, it showed us a lot about who we are, even though Johnston ended up winning with 54% of the vote, he should have won, you know, we thought, we thought it would be more like 60, 65% of the vote. We, 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 we I remember Senator, I remember flying up with Senator Johnston. He and I were talking about this a few months ago. I remember flying up with him to Shreveport the day of the election so he could vote in person. And uh, and we thought for sure, you know, he's going to get 65 percent of the vote. We, he was he we were all stunned that it was that it was I mean, 54, 54, 46 or 55, 45, whatever it was. It's a pretty solid victory. But it but it seemed it seemed embarrassingly close when you're when you're running against the former leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And, and really, one of the most infamous ads in Louisiana political history is from that race, and that is the one where you see David Duke without a hood yeah. on, surrounded by Klansmen, yeah. lighting a cross and giving up a Nazi salute. When you saw that ad, 
it's still I know for a lot of people it's still jarring to this day. But when you're working on this campaign and they pop that tape in, what is your reaction? Well, I thought that I mean I thought that was his. I thought that politically it was over. Sort of like I thought that Donald Trump was 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 toast when the Access Hollywood tape came out. I mean, it was just this is there's no way you can survive this. There's, and 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 I hope that that is the case. That that if there was any chance that, that Duke had any momentum, that he might have made it closer or might have won. That 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 this. So Duke was was very good at at um, at presenting his racism in a very gauzy sort of populist uh, language that didn't that wasn't the kind of racism that the people who'd known him earlier in his career, the the people that I know who saw him in Free Speech Alley at LSU during his college years or afterwards when he was leading the Klan. He 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 really he really soft pedaled that racism and you know didn't use those he used code words but he didn't use he didn't use the the outright uh, racist words that people who knew him better had maybe expected or or thought he would use and this reminded people that wait 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 this is not just some conservative this is not just some ultra conservative this is not just some guy who's racially intolerant this is this is a guy who burn crosses, who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and who held birthday parties for Adolf Hitler. Um, this, is the, this, is, this, is, this is a different animal than anything that, uh, that we've ever seen in this, this state and, uh, and much different from, from what he's presenting himself as being a more, just, a, just a, a, an extreme conservative. And you took another leave in 1995 and came and worked for the state Democratic Party right. in that election cycle. And out of that, you've written, which is really one of the most poignant things I've read, is you write about how you attacked Buddy Romer yeah. and then later developed an affinity for him. So, so how did that work? Because we see in politics people attacking each other all the time. But for you, what was that personal journey like with the former governor? Well, it was a take-no-prisoners thing for me in a campaign. And I didn't, I didn't particularly like myself in, a, in the campaign environment. I was pretty aggressive and, um, and really you know, went for the jugular. And so um, – I had come down here to the Capitol uh, to speak to this, these young Democrats one Saturday morning, and 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 I mean I got them really whipped up. Boy, did I get them whipped up about. Uh, I think I called Buddy a racist. I, I you know his father and his brother had gone to prison, so I started I was referring to him as the as the Romer crime family, and said if he wants to do something about the crime in the state, which was something he was talking about in the race, that maybe he ought to start with members of his own family, and I don't remember what else I said, but it. This is this is it was a it was a mistake on my part, and for two reasons I shouldn't have attacked him personally, and I should also have realized that there was an advocate reporter in the back of the room who was recording and writing down everything that I said. So it wound up on the front page of the of the Advocate the next morning on Sunday morning, and um, you know a lot of my friends thought it was funny, and I thought it was funny too, and you know I wasn't particularly embarrassed by it at the time. Uh, fast forward. Oh, I don't know how many years. Fast forward, you know, uh, 15 years maybe. Well, it was it would have been 18 years. Um, no, 13. It would have been 13 years. 13 years. So I have I one day I called Buddy. He and I had had become kind of friendly. I'd run him to him at the bookstore here in Baton Rouge. And when I went to work for Kathleen Blanco, he was he was around and and was very kind to me and others and giving us some good advice and all that. And so we became more and more friendly. And I was teaching a class. And uh, in 2000, in the fall of 2008, and I invited him to come speak to my class at LSU. And I thought, you know, I'm really, I'm really embarrassed and ashamed of, of some of the stuff I did. And I probably ought to start apologizing to some of these people. And I thought, well, you know, instead of just writing him a letter 
instead of you know sending them an email I should probably do it publicly I should and I should probably use it as a teaching moment for my students to show them not only talk to them about what bad behavior in, the, in a political environment looks like but also show them that if you that if that when you apologize you ought to own up to it in a very public way and so I just I before I introduced him I spent about five minutes reviewing every bad thing I'd said or done about him and apologized to him and he was very he was so gracious to me and um and uh and I wouldn't say we became great friends, but I mean, every time I see Governor Romer, and we went to, we went to the same church for a number of years, um, he was very warm to me, and I was very I was I, I was very uh, friendly to him, and we developed a, a good a good relationship, and I, I have a lot of respect for him. I think that he was way ahead of his time, and uh, we should have listened to him more than we did in those days. You take another dive on the state politics level. You of course have been in D.C. You go to work for Senator Bro as the state director here in Baton Rouge. And then you go work for Kathleen Blanco during her 2003 campaign for yeah. governor. And that is, again, another race that is the infamous Louisiana race when she gets into that runoff with Bobby Jindal. What was that race like from a staff perspective? Well, I came in in the last, uh, I don't know, uh, month of the race. Uh, so she'd just gotten into the runoff. And one day I'm sitting in my office here in Baton Rouge, and John Bro calls me and says, uh, you're going to work for Kathleen Blanco. And I said, What? And uh, he said, no, you're going to, I, 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 I just talked, got the phone with Kathleen and you're going to go over and help her out for the next month. And I said, oh man, I don't want to do that. I mean, you know, I was, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to do another campaign because going back to, you know, the, the Romer story that I just told, I knew the kind of person I became in these campaigns and I just didn't want to be that person again, you know? And he said, oh, don't worry about it. It's only going to be a month, you know? And if she doesn't, if she doesn't win, you'll, you'll come back and work for me and blah, blah, blah. So just go do it. So you know, I didn't really have much choice. He was, t he wasn't really asking me if I wanted to go do this. So I went and did it. And, um, thinking that win or lose, I was going to come back and work for bro. And, uh, she won. Um, and, uh, she ran a, a masterful race in that, in, the, in that last four weeks, just destroyed Bobby Jindal. And I just got, to be honest with you, I just kind of got wrapped up in the whole thing and thought, wow, you know, this, I've never worked for a governor. This would be fun. This is, you know, she wants to do some really great things, and I think I'd like to be a part of that. And then about that time, John Rowe decided he wasn't going to run for re-election, and so the, the, the decision was was even easier to to stay and, and work for her because I needed a job. But I, I think I had, by that time I would already sort of resolved that I wanted to that I wanted to work for her. And, and we, I've asked you about what was it like working for Russell Long and, and John Bro. And Governor Blanco is somebody, I think, who is known for her personality, mm -hmm. really everybody. What was she like as after you come away working for Russell Long and John Bro and Bennett Johnson? What was it like to then go work for Kathleen Blanco on a personal level? Well, she was probably the the boss that I had that I knew the best before I went to work for her. I knew Bro, I knew Bro as a you know when I went to Washington for two years, I'd see John a lot, but we didn't we weren't really close friends. I'd see him here and there, and we'd visit briefly but we didn't know each other all that well i didn't know russell long at all except for a few interviewing him a few times didn't know him on a personal level i mean i knew kathleen blanco as kathleen i mean i called her kathleen and and i knew her husband coach and i'd see them and we would spend time at all we would you know working for bro over the years they, they were always it's we were always at the same events you know and um i just got to know them really well I got to know coach probably better than than governor blanco uh and so she, it was. It was kind of weird because you know she becomes governor, and I can't call her Kathleen anymore. I got to call her governor, and and I was fine. I wanted to call her governor, but um, but it was it was a it was kind of interesting because I, I was going to work for someone that I that I knew really really well, and it kind of and it, and it, you know you go you go from being friend 
um, to being employee, and you know, and so it was a different. It changed the relationship, not in a bad way, but it just changed the relationship. Uh, she was, she was, uh, she is, was, and is a delightful person, um, a, a very kind, thoughtful, deeply faithful, deeply spiritual person, uh, about as calm a presence as you can imagine. Except when she got fired up about something, and then boy, could she, she could, she could knock into next week with with a, with with that with with her eyes sometimes, but. Uh, but she when when she did she was usually she was she usually did it because you were wrong and she was right but um i loved working i loved working for her i regret that uh, the last i don't know uh eight months of my time was in the sort of the aftermath katrina and the aftermath of katrina because um that was not the most pleasant time for anybody in louisiana or louisiana politics and so uh but i have so much respect for her personally and professionally and the way she handled herself during Katrina and afterwards and the dedication that she had to building the state, rebuilding the state and what she did to make it happen. Is that experience in the Blanco administration during Hurricane Katrina, was that the hardest thing you did in your career? Yeah, I guess it was. I mean, it was certainly the most emotion, the hardest emotionally. Um, it was, um, it was not, I mean, it was just, I, I, I you know, I'd, I'd worked for bro and we'd had, We'd gone to the site of, I mean, Hurricane Andrew when it came through. We 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 went to see some disaster sites, but you know, there wasn't like massive. It might have been this, you know, a couple of houses turned over and this and that. You know, it wasn't like thousands of people dead. And so, yeah, this was just of a such of a greater magnitude than anything I had ever seen or been involved in. This was this was a catastrophe, and uh, it just boggles the mind. It's still, it's still, I have a hard time wrapping my head around what how it shattered southwest southeast louisiana and then later southwest louisiana with 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 rita a month later um yeah i mean it was just the most um physically exhausting emotionally taxing period of my life and i'm part of me is very glad that i got a front row history in this a front row seat in this incredible history of our state but it's still it's still it's still just so sad that um, this happened and so many people did die and so many lives were disrupted and, and are still disrupted in, in all kinds of ways. It's, uh, it's, it's, it was a really humbling experience uh, uh, flying into New Orleans. over you know, uh, That Thursday, I'll never forget going with Governor on a, heli- on a Black Hawk helicopter down to New Orleans and seeing the city for the first time underwater and just how the emotions that wash over you to, to, to just every, every one of those homes represents either a life lost or a livelihood lost or certainly a home lost for a family and it's just it's just it was just an overwhelming experience in 2006 i believe you leave the blanco administration and you go join the faculty at lsu what led you to make the jump from working in politics you've been in politics of course since 85 86 to um uh, the academic side well i had taught as an adjunct on the manship faculty the last couple of years that i was working for bro and I really wanted to go teach full time, and uh, and then I and then I got this job working for Blanco, and I quit teaching altogether. There was no time to, to teach as an adjunct at that point. Um, but it was, but I I had loved that experience. I mean, I loved being in the classroom um, for those four semesters that I did it. Loved these loved these students, and um, I had been writing books. I'd wrote, written my first book about Russell Long. I'd written two more books. Um, 
while I worked for, uh, for, for, for Bro, two other books while I worked for Bro on civil rights and the Vietnam War. And I wanted to keep writing books. I mean, I was really, I really wanted to get back to book writing. And, um, and I knew that if I stayed in politics, that it just was not the kind of life that is conducive to writing on the side. I mean, Bro made it really easy for me, but I had to do it part time. I mean, the first book, it was three days in the office, two days at home. Um, the second book, the third book was, was, uh, was, was two days in the office, three days off writing at home. And I wasn't making a lot of money because, you know, I had to take a commensurate cut and, cut and pay for those time, that time off. And so I just knew that if I wanted to keep writing and I really wanted to do that, I had to go find a job that would support that writing, that where writing was a central part of the job. And being on a faculty is certainly one of those, one of those jobs. So when this job came along, I, I jumped at it and, and, and applied for it and was really lucky to get it. And you talk about writing books. You actually have a new book coming out yep. in October about President Reagan. Yep. Um, now, I know you can't reveal too much because we want everybody to buy the book, but kind of give us a little rundown of what you got. Well, it's a part of his life. The book is called Becoming Ronald Reagan, The Rise of a Conservative Icon. And it's really about this part of his life that gets a chapter or maybe part of a chapter in uh, a lot of books, but um, has not gotten many books itself. And that is this, how did Ronald Reagan go from being a committed New Deal liberal in his youth, in his early days as an actor in Hollywood, how did he go from being a liberal to a conservative to being this conservative icon? Um, and it really was a story of Reagan in the 50s and early 60s and how when he went to work for, for General Electric as the host of General Electric Theater, how that experience was the, the, uh, the, um, that, the atmosphere at GE and, uh, and at the... Uh, the G plants that he visited and the, and the audiences he spoke to around the country while he was doing his GE tours turned him into a conservative um, and made him into the, the, the conservative icon that we now know. Um, but it's really the story of, you know, how that happened. How did he, how did he go from, how did he go from liberal to conservative in those years? And while we're touching on your academic career, what is your favorite part about teaching and working with students? It, you know, I, I guess a few a few years ago, I would have said it's just being in the classroom with them and and getting to know them and 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 that is that is it. Uh, I love I do study I lead a study abroad program every summer to Europe, and um, that has become my favorite, one of my favorite, if not the favorite thing I do because I I get to know them over a month. You know, you're with them 15, 16 hours a day. Uh, over that time, and you really get to know these young people much better than you do if you're only seeing them three hours a week in class. And uh, you develop friendships with them, and you just know more about them, and you just it's, it's just deeper that way. And I really enjoy that. Plus, you're also taking these young people, most of whom are from Louisiana, who've never been anywhere, never traveled outside the country, and being their guide, showing them Europe, showing them these European capitals, and you know, it's just it's. I, I tell them every, at the end of the the, the I tell them at the end of the the program every year i feel like this proud dad who's just taking his kids to disney world you know you kind of get i get to see these famous sites and i get to see all this stuff through their eyes and it's 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 incredible to see the transformation in these young people who arrive in london pretty intimidated not really sure whether they can walk three blocks down the street without without one of us faculty members being with them and by the end of the of the month in prague they're just they are just total totally seasoned travelers who are very confident of themselves and their ability to navigate in a foreign country and a foreign language and 
and see themselves in a different way, see them see themselves in the world in a different way. Now, you're known pretty well as a political analyst, so I'm going to ask, we are recording this on Wednesday, January 30th at our office over here at the Capitol. The governor's race is getting underway. It's going to be, of course, at the top of the list for 2019. Any predictions this early out? You know, I learned last time around not to make any predictions. I made I, I made a a, a, a a really bad prediction, and that was that, that, that John Bell Edwards couldn't beat, that no Democrat could beat David Vitter in a runoff, and that proved to be wrong. And I'm glad I was wrong. I've never been happier to be wrong about something than I was about that, that prediction. But I'm a, I have a little more humility about making predictions. But I will say that I think what we know today in, in late January – uh, of this election year is that that he that Governor Edwards is sitting is situated far better than I think anyone would have you know maybe he would have expected it but I, I I've asked a number of people would you would you would you have predicted that Edwards would be where he is today uh, going into his his reelection and most people say no I don't think he, I, I never imagined he would be he would be so strong um, and. Not that he's surprised people. He certainly didn't surprise me. I have a, I have a, I've always had a tremendous amount of confidence in his ability and his political instincts and his governing ability, and I think he's done a, an amazing job. But what's what kind of surprises me is how many people, even Republicans, even you know, independents and Republicans, recognize that. And I think maybe it's not just John Bell Edwards and his political skill, but it's the fact that the the Jindal years were such a disaster, such a such an awful time for the states that, that the state was so thoroughly mismanaged in every way that um, that you know almost just showing up for work, you know just coming to work, which Bobby Jindal didn't do a lot of the time. Uh, you get a lot of credit for that, and so Edwards has done a lot more than just show up for work. He's shown up for work and really righted this ship, got the got things back in order, got our fiscal situation leveled off and 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 quote unquote fixed. Uh, in ways that I don't think people would have expected or would have predicted. And he had the good fortune of, 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 of being able to fix things last year, not, not have to do it this year. So there's not going to be a, this ugly, ugly fiscal session in this year that's going to be about raising taxes and get everybody all upset. Uh, that, that stuff was done last year. And so, you know, I, he – he can certainly be defeated. I'm not saying he's a he's a lock for re-election. This is still a very Republican state, but there are a lot of people who've who've already voted for him once, and I think they'll do it again. Are you familiar with the Proust questionnaire? No. It's a series of rapid-fire questions. Vanity Fair usually puts it in the back of the magazine, and we like to do it with our guests. Okay. Um, this show is really about personality, so if you're game, I got a couple for you. All right. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Oh, a day off with absolutely nothing to do. What is your greatest fear? Um, not living long enough to see my grandchildren. What is the trait you most admire in others? Kindness. What is your greatest extravagance? Uh, I buy books. I buy way too many books. What is your current state of mind? Um, a little anxious. I'm going to Washington Mardi Gras, and so my and my daughter's a princess. So I'm a little anxious okay. about that. I want that to go well for her. On what occasion do you lie? <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, I, I've lied a lot in the last month when people ask me how I'm feeling. I had back surgery, and uh, instead of telling people, instead of boring people about all my my aches and pains, when they ask me how I'm doing, I'm saying I'm doing fine, but I'm really not. What is the? I'm sorry. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? Probably uh, the word I, that I wish I didn't say as much is yes. I, I need to learn to say no to things. Which talent would you most like to have? Without a doubt, I want to be, I would want to be a banjo player in a bluegrass band. That's a solid choice. So we end the show every way, on my, every time the same way. I turn it over to you. You can ask me a question. On my, you can promote a charity or a cause, or you can just tell me to wrap it up. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Bob, the final word. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll say this. The, and we didn't really get into my column, but uh, maybe maybe I'll go back to where I, or to the lie part. People say, "Do you miss your column uh, that I wrote for the Picayune for five years?" And I'll, I'll usually say, "No, I didn't. I don't miss it. I'm glad to have the time to to write and do other things." But if I'm honest, uh, I really miss that. I really miss the the forum for uh, expressing my views. We started off talking about Twitter, and um, and. Twitter is a poor substitute for a weekly column in the Picayune, and I miss that a lot because I, it, 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 it allowed me to talk about stuff that I really cared about in more than 240 characters. Talk about writing about poverty and our education system and all the other inequities, the racism that I think is still a problem in this state, and I, and I miss that. And so um, um, I, uh, I, uh, I wish that I still had that had that outlet so i give i thank you for for giving me a, a chance to come here and, and talk with you today and kind of make up for that uh, that hole in my life well, anytime you want to come back <laughs> the door our door is always open that is robert townley mann jr a man who enjoys reading and cannot wait for his next writing assignment bob thanks so much for being on the show thank you mitch that is it that is the show quite quite a discussion with bob mann um, very revealing very interesting and certainly, I know we both laughed a lot and had a lot of fun during the interview, but also touched on, on some really important topics that he brought up and things that he's talked about in his career. Now, next go-round, we're going to have Insurance Commissioner Jim Donilon on. You're going to hear from him. Jeremy's going to sit down with him, and they're going to talk about his long career in Louisiana politics and everything that's really transpired. Maybe make a little news and talk about how things are heading out for this Insurance Commissioner's race that we've got on the ballot in the fall. Definitely could be a sleeper race. So stay tuned, keep in touch, and as always, keep your ethics in compliance, your war chest full, and your politics wild and ambitious.